Welcome to Off the Cuff with Congressman Jared Huffman. As a representative for California's 2nd Congressional District, Off the Cuff is my opportunity to talk with you about important issues and to introduce you to interesting people from the 2nd District and beyond. It's unfiltered, it's direct, and it's honest. It's Off the Cuff with me, Congressman Jared Huffman. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Today we are going to talk about partisanship, civility, Russia, the Internet, and maybe even a little bit of religion with one of my great Republican colleagues, Jeff Fortenberry of Nebraska. Jeff's in his 14th year in Congress. He represents the 1st District of Nebraska, chairs the Appropriations Subcommittee on the Legislative Branch, which includes individual budgets for offices. That's why I'm always very nice to Jeff Fortenberry. Your benefits. Yes. <laughs> he has worked a lot on foreign policy, nuclear security, co-chairs a nuclear security working group, among other priorities. And I have come to know and respect Jeff as a colleague and uh, also a great competitor in the House Gym, where we regularly play paddle ball. I'm very excited to have you on the podcast, Jeff, so that we can test this widely held assumption that Republicans and Democrats in Washington cannot work together or have civil conversations? That is a good rhetorical question in which you are proving the opposite, right? Let's talk. Today's podcast. Well, the podcast is young. You know, we still got some <laughs> ground to cover. Okay. Um, all right. Well, let's talk with you about your district. Okay. You represent suburban Lincoln, right? I live in Lincoln, and Lincoln is really more of a compact city, so we don't distinguish downtown from suburbs too much. We're a compact city, so we've got a a vibrant downtown area, which is the seat of state government. Uh, the Huge University, university. The University of Nebraska is right there, the football epicenter of the universe, as <laughs> you're aware. Used to be. <laughs> We're getting there, getting returning. Um, and then uh, we, we, we grow in concentric circles, if you will, then the corn starts. Uh, and so we don't, it's mainly the development type of philosophy in Nebraska has been to keep the city mostly contiguous uh, so that it is a, a singular place, if you will. I used to be on the city council, so these mm -hmm. were a lot of the discussions that we had. But your district um, reaches out into some very rural areas, too. That's right? correct. So Lincoln is about half the population. Lincoln and the surrounding area is about half the population. And then we've got um, a significant expanse of very vibrant rural communities where it's corn and cattle, mm -hmm. soybeans as well. Uh, I represent two military uh, establishments, the Offutt Air Force Base, which is... I was going to ask you about yeah. it. So that's, if I'm not mistaken, your district kind of horseshoes around Omaha, right? right. And uh, that uh, facility, I think, is the location of the old, or it's near the, the old Martin Bomber plant that used right. to crank out B-29s in right. World War II. Still exists, by the way. Okay. So one of the ideas that we worked on is establishing, because it is so old and so difficult to maintain and so expensive, for the military is taking a portion of, the, portion of that and making it a bit of a museum. But anyway, that's a, that's a long-term strategy. Well, I want you to know that my grandmother was a Rosie the Riveter at that bombing plant. Really? Yeah. She's from Missouri? Did she come over? Or yeah. Is that how it happened? Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. So I represent Offutt and then the Strategic Command, which is co-located there on the base. Strategic Command is in charge of our uh, nuclear weapons policy. And hence uh, your interest in nuclear security. Correct. Part of their mission, of course, is, is primarily to keep us safe in the event that some nuclear incident would uh, hopefully never occur, mm -hmm. but would, would potentially occur. 
but also non-proliferation. Right. I mean, the purpose of our nuclear weapons, as you are aware, is to ensure that they are never ever used. That's the fundamental purpose, because uh, no one wins. No yeah. one could ever win a nuclear war. That was Ronald Reagan's expression. Then from there, I also represent uh, several Native American communities. Two large uh, Native American communities have reservations, landed reservations in the district, the Winnebago and the Omaha. Also represent the Ponca tribe, who has some space in Lincoln, uh, land to the north of the district, but uh, vibrant communities, good communities, who um, have suffered the residual effects of very bad deals from a long time ago. Mm -hmm and are yet are again regenerating some economic development not just economic development but also uh, revitalization of culture and language yeah. so that's passed on to the children so that's i'm very good. proud of that good good stuff well, let's go to an easy question russia a little bit of controversy mm -hmm. on russia recently and uh, of course president trump was just in helsinki um, I read the statement that you made after President Trump's uh, press conference in Helsinki with Vladimir Putin. I found it very thoughtful. You started by acknowledging that there has been Russian election interference. That's obvious. Uh, you called for the completion of the Mueller investigation. And you then called on the United States to uh, simultaneously engage and negotiate with Russia, because we need to, but do that with our eyes wide open. And I want to just read uh, the part of your statement that, that jumped out at me. You said, it's nevertheless important to always remember with whom we are dealing. Russia invaded the Ukraine, annexed Crimea, and took territory from our ally Georgia. The hard work of coming to a new and deeper understanding with Russia based on their long suffering, their history and poetry, while being mindful of strongman belligerence and thievery, is a delicate balancing act. We need a new 21st century architecture of diplomacy that's realistic about Russian threats and intentions, but also leaves open the door for engagement. It's nicely said. Thank you. Uh, this, these, if, if you don't mind, maybe I could give a little advertisement. Is it, if anybody's interested, we do a weekly column called The Fort Report. And what I try to do, back to your earlier comments, is to go deeper into issues because there's a problem with the lowest common denominator type of sound bites around here. Um, you're bad, I'm good, mm -hmm. I'm good, you're bad. It, I think people are exhausted by it. And so what I've tried to do to make some small contribution to the larger debate is to delve a little bit deeper into issues and we write once a week in, in a manner that I believe is, is, is substantive and trying to make a contribution. When you do that, you have time versus your eight seconds on the television yeah. to speak in the more complex, multi-layered, textured way that I think is necessary where you have complex, multi-layered right. issues. Russia is a mega problem, yet a diversion, a diverting back to Cold War status or expecting them to fold under democratic capitalism neatly are false narratives. They're just false narratives. More complicated. Missed a huge opportunity after the Cold War mm -hmm. to try to not only hold out the hand of friendship to say, listen, we are going to try to delve deeper into your culture in order to develop the, the space for mutual understanding by acknowledging this long suffering and this beautiful poetry mm -hmm. of the Russian people. And at the same time, not accepting certain parameters that you have traditionally imposed upon the world 
through this mythical Russian nationalism that seeks to expand territory or empowers strong men to find their political well-being uh, by creating, again, this narrative, this myth of, of a Russian empire. expansionist yeah. empire or aggression. So it doesn't have to be either one of those things. Now, you've got to know clearly who you're dealing with, if you're sober and not naive about this. But at the same time, not being willing to have a conversation with people who could kill you in an instant, and we could kill them in an instant. Remember, I represent strategic command. That's right. Um, and this is true. It is not only uh, foolish, but it increases the risk to all of us of the unthinkable. So back to the issue of, of President Trump meeting with Putin, I support that type of engagement. What got all commingled was the issue of interference in the election, which was true, our intelligence committees have said it, the issue of collusion, which the president forcefully denies. I've heard him deny it in person and forcefully Putin denies. forcefully denies interference in the election. I, I would assume we have credibility rather, issues on both fronts. Okay. I assume you'd rather <laughs> trust our president than the other one. But our own house, at least our side of the aisle, found evidence that supports the president's clear, forceful um, denial of any collusion. But the whole thing got commingled, the three issues. Interference, yes. Collusion, again, the yep. president's saying strongly no. And then the idea as to whether or not we ought to be talking to these people. Well, it, and it got, all right, I don't want to get too sidetracked <laughs> on this because we're already at, at, at a point of, of uh, disagreement. Right. I mean, it got, it got injected by the president. He brings you brought it up. It up. But you brought, you asked I'm talking about uh, <laughs> negotiations and this, right. this dual track of negotiations while having your eyes wide open. Right. So uh, we can agree that's the right approach. No, I, I, I now. The reason that I said all this, another, I think I mentioned it in that last four report, I actually did. I, I was on the phone with the Russian ambassador several years back, yeah. a previous ambassador, in my, the parking lot of my children's school. He's yelling at me because I had called him about the last little threat of nuclear nonproliferation cooperation, which was dying. But I reminded him that I called him to try to seek some type of mutual understanding. He calmed and the situation went back to gray. Back to this. Is black or white? Cold War or democratic capitalism? No. Sometimes you have to live with a non-solution to allow the space for a broadening solution, and that's what I call mm -hmm. 21st century architecture. So it's an interesting, uh, interesting framework for, for dealing with Russia, and yeah. I like it. Uh, I, I will choose not to fight with you about uh, the collusion <laughs> issue because I know the Senate reached very different <laughs> findings and. I don't think much of the, the one-sided partisan report out of the House Intel Committee, but here we go. See, it's this your is the, podcast. This is the stuff we could fight word. about if we wanted to. <laughs> We're going to choose not to. Right. Um, hey, you have been in both the minority and the majority in Congress. Right. I find that kind of interesting. You got here in 2005. You're in the majority. Some years go by. All of a sudden, Nancy Pelosi's the speaker. You're, uh, you know... In the, in the wilderness for a few years, and then uh, you've been in the majority since 2011. Uh, talk about what's different, uh, serving in Congress in the majority and the minority, because all I've ever been is in the minority. We'll see what this election brings. Mm. Well, maybe this is in politics, but being in the minority can be easier. You just get to vote no. <laughs> <laughs> Voting yes is harder, a lot harder. Um, I'll tell you this quick story when uh, Speaker Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi and I actually have a, I think, a very 
good and robust friendship. She's always asking about my kids. I have five daughters. Um, she, my daughters will come to Washington and they'll say, can we go speak, speak with Pelosi? And they'll show up at her office. She mm -hmm. always welcomes Oh, that's nice. So we have a, a good fr a personal friendship. In fact, I went to see her the other day on an issue of a new type of educational center in Normandy, France, to commemorate the battle there, but also have it be a place of ongoing understanding of what World War II actually meant. And that was, of course, a seminal battle. So we, we worked at it. When she first became speaker, uh, of course, you know, on the Republican side, so there's ire and, 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 and denial, and, you know, forsaken and grief, yeah. what is it, anger, denial, oh, yeah. and, all that, um, and finally acceptance. But as she was being sworn in, um, she invited all the children to come up. Mm -hmm. Now, I had my oldest daughter with me and one of my nephews who was very... Yeah. Well, that's a historic picture well, of her with all the children. Yeah. Well, if you look right next to her, it's my nephew. Yeah. In the New York front page of New York Times and her. And you can see half the face of my oldest child. Who was oh, that's little cool. Little. So, um, yes, I've lived in both environments. Yeah. Uh, I think, honestly, again, back to the bipartisan nature of the podcast, I think America is less interested in majority, minority, Democrat, Republican, other than, than what are you doing? <laughs> I think, frankly, that's the issue that affects both of us. What are you going to do to solve problems? And so while we get caught up in the um, intricacies of who's going to chair committees and all that, and that comes with power, so it's better to in fact, be in power, particularly chairing committees, because you get enhanced staff and you run the agenda. So that's why we do that. But I think the deeper issue for the people is how are you going to get things constructively done? And um, I suspect, I mean, I don't, I, I know you well personally, but I don't, I don't know your district quite as well, even though I've been there. Mm -hmm. I suspect that's the same sentiment oh, sure. there as to where, as where I come from. Yeah, I, you know, you, we come, you come from a, a deeply red district, mine is deeply blue, but uh, my constituents expect me to make compromise when needed and, and to get results and to be bipartisan wherever I can. Well, I was saying, you know, stand on your principle and work toward it. Yeah. So sometimes it means if you can make gain ground, I mean, a football game is a yard at a time, 10 mm -hmm. yards at a time. You're not throwing a pass play in the end zone every time. I mean, sorry, football analogies work for me. That's what that's what you do. So if you're advancing what you believe in, that's good, even though you didn't get fully what you want. You got any advice if Democrats do take back the House? Do you have advice for us on how to run this place? Uh, I would. Uh, here is something that I think you ought to do. I think the speaker, next speaker, ought to have a Republican working group that she mm -hmm. or he regularly consults with. Yeah, I think both sides. I like think that, both too. sides ought to do that. And not just the casual conversation that takes place between mm -hmm. leadership, either on the floor or in heated moments where the last residual effects of a bill on the conference yeah. committee are being worked out. I, I just think that would help. It's an interesting idea. We don't have an equivalent on our side of the hashtag rule, but it's thinking like that that gets us into this majoritarian partisan mode. Yeah, you agree? One of the pro yes, I think one of the problems on your side of the aisle is you don't have term limits for chairing. Mm -hmm. So what that's creating, among, particularly among your younger members like you, is anxiety that they will never be in a position to potentially lead. On the Republican side, we do that. So it creates a certain um, possibility for ambitions internally, whereas that's clamped down more on your side. And yeah. I think that's part of your fight. There's, there's some 
change of foot, I think. I, but I'm we'll hearing see. that. I'm reading that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see uh, where it goes. Okay, so uh, let's let's kind of segue into religion a little bit. You are the co-chair of a caucus that's focused on religious minorities in the Middle East, yeah. and you do that with uh, my Bay Area colleague Anna Eshoo, right? Anna and I are very close friends. Um, I saw Anna, I went to Iraq two and a half weeks ago at the behest of the vice president. Um, I went to northern Iraq and then into the plane. And before I went, I went to get Anna's counsel mm -hmm. because we co-chair that caucus uh, after we passed, we together passed the genocide resolution that declared what was happening to the, to the ancient Christian communities, the ancient Yazidi communities, as well as other religious minorities at the hands of ISIS to be genocide. Work with the Obama administration, particularly Secretary Kerry, who helped get that through. And Congress passed it, and then they affirmed it at the State Department. Um, two and a half weeks ago, I went there again at the request of the Vice President because um, what we did was move some aid monies out of multilateral organizations and tried to move it directly to the people in need to help, particularly the Christians and Yazidis, rebuild. Uh, the, the reasons for that are multiple. Again, Iraq used to have a, a mosaic, a, a tapestry of um, religious diversity. And uh, several Arab Muslim leaders of countries in the area have said this, particularly about the Christians, you lose a population, you're not going to find peace. When you have a diversity of religious perspectives, then you have the possibility for tolerance and therefore a healthy nationalism. If you don't have that, you're going to just default back to tribal or ethnic allegiance, and you undermine the principles of what you and I would agree on as a proper form of nationalism, if you will, a healthy nationalism. So when ISIS targeted those communities for extinction because of their dark theology, and by the way, the people they killed the most were innocent Muslims. Sure. Um, it became clear that there was three levels of issues here. First of all, justice for the oppressed. Secondly, these people have a right, as much as anyone else, to be in their ancient homelands. And third is, it really is the principles of civilization itself. If we aren't going to rally ourselves as a humanity around a fundamental principle of human dignity, then none of this is going to work. We have no chance at some type of a healthy order for civilization in the future. It's just belligerent and who has the most belligerent and most have, has the most advanced technology. So we're trying to target funds to, to help those communities rebuild. And meeting with the Iraqi Prime Minister who was eager for the conversation as well. Security there is weak. Uh, if security remains weak, it's harder for the Christians who've trickled back to return. The Yazidis, 400,000 are in displaced person camps. I you have a bunch of Yazidis in your district. I, I do. I represent the largest Yazidi community in America. I've gotten to know that community well. Um, many of them earned citizenship because they were our translators at the height of the Iraq War. And through an odd convergence of things that made Nebraska their home, that's how they earned citizenship. But um, you've got 3,500 Yazidi women still held in slavery by wow. ISIS. And we've met with some of the women who were able to get out. They had blank stares. There's no joy in their face. Yeah. The, 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 the hope has been ripped from their hearts because of the devastation they've gone through. But they've survived, and so it's another reason why I went to try to do some evaluation about what we can do. 
Well, an interesting challenge trying to uh, support religious pluralism and tolerance in a region where the religious fault lines are but you should tell so pronounced. Correct. But again, without this idea of, of the, the central core principle of civilization itself is respect and tolerance for human dignity. And that's going to manifest itself in certain differences of, of practice. But as long as there's protection of that sacred space, if you will, and allow the person to exercise it in right conscience, good conscience, and then manifest itself in creedal yeah. formula. But, but we had these dialogues. Oh, we lot. talk about religion. You have a different yeah. perspective. I'm a Roman so you're Catholic. Then a devout Roman Catholic. You, well, you, on Sundays you go to mass and I watch NFL football well, games. Well, that's okay. Um, I watch later than you do. Um, but you tell you invited me to the humanist. That's right. Caucus. So my, I went. my podcast listeners know that I'm a, I'm a non-religious humanist. I'm interested in these questions of spirituality, yeah. but haven't really found a home in any organized religion. And you and I have had a lot of good talks about this, right? right? Well, in fact, at the Humanist Caucus event, which you kindly invited me to attend, you surprised me about that. Let, let me just tee that up. Okay. So I formed this Congressional Free Thought Caucus. Free Thought, which, sorry, I thought yeah, it was Humanist. That's okay. But we focus on the, the defending the secular character of government and the line of separation between church and state. We had an interesting speaker at one of our meetings, a guy named Daniel Dennett, who's a professor at Tufts. Um, who uh, has all sorts of interesting theories about science and critical thinking. And uh, we invited you and you showed up and participated in a really interesting conversation. He was talking about the internet in this case and how it has um, you know, this powerful, disruptive uh, effect on society and may make us vulnerable to chaos and calamity if and when it actually goes down. Yeah and what it's going to do to the fabric of our culture. Right. and um, It was a good conversation, and you showed up and took part of it. You must be pretty secure in your faith to talk with the <laughs> Well, no, I mean, humans. you know, how, how are we going to find some mutual understanding? How am I going to be true to myself and live in integrity if I don't share what I think to be true with you, and that you aren't receptive based upon just respect and tolerance back to that principle of human dignity? And frankly, that's what makes life kind of worth living and fun to enter into dialogue based upon reasonableness, based upon a principle you hold, to try to bring about with conviction an invitation to another person to see your principle. But that's fun. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. That's life. And I think the, the professor, you remember I asked him a question, I don't remember what it was, but he he, he actually affirmed what I yeah. was suggesting. So his premise yeah. is that uh, there's this new transparency uh, that the internet and social media and other things have brought to society that in some ways is going to make it harder for religions to be the right. glue that holds society together. Right. Um, and if we don't have churches as these sort of uh, organizing points in our communities, and if the internet goes out, he's really worried about what the heck happens. Right. And so I raised the issue of human longing the longing in human heart. Every heart, every person longs for two things, really. It, it's to be affirmed in love. Mm -hmm. And what that means is authentic community. I think that's something that I threw at him or, or proposed. And that actually, I'm not seeing the religious community as an earlier, non evolved place like the internet is creating for community, but it was actually an answer 
for that deeper longing. That he acknowledged does, it. He did. He did. Yeah. He said I, he greatly respects that. And he's an atheist philosopher. Yeah, it's interesting. So, he respected because yeah. it was religion that was holding all that together. But back to your earlier point about the internet, I think what we, our world is, we're at a point where we're longing for belonging. We're screaming for meaning. And as important as these digital connections have become for information sharing and the advancement of good knowledge and truth, it's also created the dynamics of animus and hate. And it is a, can be a false community, one that doesn't bring about mutual understanding and respect, but actually dissension and a poor substitute for being in the presence and sharing in another suffering. That's mm -hmm. called compassion. Digital worlds don't do that very well. So I don't see it as a replacement for that deeper longing in the human heart. It can add some value in certain ways that I don't see it as a replacement. I think we go back to this deep interconnectedness, mutuality, to find that answer of belonging. It's called community. All right, let me squeeze in one more question yeah. before we have to go vote on the House floor. Um, does your, I respect your, your deep Catholic faith, um, does your faith uh, inform you on any of the policies that you work on? For example, I note that um, you've been really active on international conservation, the Okavango Delta in Africa, and some other issues. Uh, your pope is one heck of a good environmentalist. Is there any uh, inspiration that you draw from your faith that helps you uh, work on these issues? Well, I, I believe, frankly, the faith in, illumines the intellect, if you will and synthesizes the conscience, conscience to the needs of others. And so when you think about a first basic principle that transcends any sort of partisan divide, what do we all want out there? A beautiful green earth? Of course. Mm -hmm. To enjoy the gift of nature and outdoors? Absolutely. To find refreshment in things that can come from the land? That's how we feed ourselves. It's all beautiful. And so I think conservation, frankly, the root of the word is the same as conservative, uh, is a very conservative principle, but I don't, that's a political term. I think it transcends the idea of being liberal or conservative. Environmental stewardship is a proper value for the organization of one's life so that no person nor thing should ever be thrown away. That's what I believe. Mm -hmm. I think we have a, a gift of the earth and to properly steward it for our well-being, the well-being of community, and the well-being of those to come is both a gift and a responsibility and obligation, and it's exciting. And this is where some new technologies on the horizon can help us bridge to a more sustainable future. Let's hope so. You have introduced a bill uh, in, in the same vein called the, uh, the National Discovery Trails Act, uh, HR 3251, uh, very ambitious, would designate a 6,000 mile national trail system extending from Delaware Get this, it's a Point Reyes station in my district. Oh, is that right? Cool. Yeah. I didn't so know that. if you get this thing done, we're going to be able to walk to let's each other's districts. Let's go, let's go all the way across the country. The other one I've got right quick is Recovering America's Wildlife Act. And this actually has almost 100 co-sponsors uh, because it points to this deeper val value of transcending divide to getting to the heart of what it means to be a good steward of the gifts that we have. And I think that's what you and I have the obligation to do to this institution. Well, let's keep trying to find things we can talk about and work on together. Uh, appreciate your friendship. So no more interference and collusion. And yeah, we're going to fight about Donald okay. Trump, I'm afraid. Right. Uh, if I had more time, uh, you know, I could probably set you straight on that. But for now, thank you for being on that podcast. All right. Thank you. All right.
Off the Cuff is produced by Marin's own Tales Untold Media. Our music is also local, provided by Temp Love. Don't miss out on future episodes of Off the Cuff. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Just search for Off the Cuff with Jared Huffman.